Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. I would invite the congregation to please stand and please turn to Joshua chapter 1. as we will pray and then begin this morning's sermon titled, When You Have Not Passed This Way Before. Joshua chapter 1. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee, you were as a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Please be seated. So church, our theme verse this morning is going to come from Joshua chapter 3 verse 4. And we're going to get there in a moment. But before we get there, I want to paint a picture of where we're going. So once again, the title of this morning's sermon is, When You Have Not Passed This Way Before. And that title speaks to episodes in life characterized by disruptive change. Disruptive change simply refers to change that is not on your terms. When you wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to change my wardrobe, or I'm going to change the tiles in my bathroom, or I'm going to change how I go to work, that's not disruptive change. That's change on your terms because you voluntarily decide to do so. Disruptive change is involuntary. Disruptive change happens to you where you go to bed one night and you wake up the next morning and the world in which you now open your eyes is radically different than what you're used to. And in the midst of disruptive change, we tend to ask questions like, what now? Or where do we go from here? And what disruptive change will do is it'll leave some people afraid, it'll leave some people confused, and it'll leave some people doubtful. So the, in this morning's sermon, I'm going to edify the church where in the midst of disruptive change, when you have not passed this way before, where we find three C's, where we find number one, comfort, where we find number two, clarity, and where we find number three, confidence. So we're going to end up in Joshua chapter three, but let's take a step back. We're going to begin in Joshua chapter 1. What happens there? Let's set the scene. 
The scene is the entire nation of Israel has just spent four decades in the wilderness. And then one day, God gives a direct command to Joshua and says, Joshua, arise. You and the entire nation of Israel are now going to cross the Jordan into the promised land. And God's command caused, introduced a disruptive change. Here's how Joshua chapter, the book of Joshua opens. Chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. God speaks to Joshua and says, Arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. Verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble, tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1 opens with a command, which God also backs up with a promise. What happens in Joshua chapter 2? Joshua sends two spies to spy out the land. They are kept safe and preserved by Rahab. Now we're in Joshua chapter 3. And Joshua chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 says, then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So here now is the dilemma in the beginning of Joshua chapter 3. The dilemma is that the people of God did not pursue change on their own terms. In fact, God is the one who changed the terms for them and commanded the people to cross over the River Jordan. Church, we have to understand something. God's command to cross over the Jordan was given to a generation that was born in the wilderness. This was not the generation that lived in Egypt that crossed the Reed Sea. This is not that generation. This is the second generation 
that was born in the wilderness. Meaning what? They were breastfed in the wilderness. They played as children in the wilderness. They were teenagers in the wilderness. The wilderness is what they were used to. To you and I, a wilderness, a barren wasteland, may seem like an alien environment, but to the original listening audience, to them that was home. And now what does God do? He gives them a disruptive command and tells the people to abandon everything they knew, everything they were used to, and now go someplace else. God's command was going to usher in a disruptive change. Now, if we speak in broad terms, there are some people who just handle change better than others in broad terms. But also speaking in broad terms, there's a conservative tendency inside of all of us that's resistant to change. Because there's a conservative tendency inside of all of us that delights in, that rejoices in sameness. That delights in and rejoices in familiarity. Why? Because there's a felt comfort in sameness. When everything is the same, that gives people an inward sense of peace. But the mystery of the unknown, the mystery of the unfamiliar, oftentimes scares and unrattles some people. The bottom line, church, is this. The original audience in Joshua chapter 3, they were used to the wilderness. They were used to wilderness trials. They were used to wilderness weather. They were used to wilderness plants. And now God tells them, arise, get up, cross the Jordan, and go into the promised land. The people were not used to the promised land. They weren't used to abundance. They were used to scarcity. They weren't used to giants being in the land. They were used to wilderness trials, not promised land trials. But even though God was moving them from one place to a better place, the better place was unfamiliar. Do you know why it's called the promised land church? Because it's the land that God promised. God doesn't make bad promises. He makes good promises, something more full, full of life and abundant for his people. And at the end of the day, when we're talking about disruptive change, the fact of human nature is this. Better scare some people simply because it's new. A change of scenery, even though we may be moving, even though you may be moving from a place of scarcity to a place of abundance. That transition, that move, scares some people simply because it's new. There's a human tendency towards familiarity, even if the familiar is wrong, and even if the unfamiliar is better. There's a reason why, in broad terms, so many Christians are arrested in their spiritual growth. 
because if one were to put something substantive, something abundant in front of them, using figurative language now, like spiritual meat, potatoes, and broccoli, if that individual is used to spiritual milk or is used to spiritual baby food, they find comfort in the familiar. So now when given something robust and substantive, they may often reject it simply because it's new. So when a plate of spiritual steak, broccoli, and mashed potatoes with gravy is put in front of them, because they're used to the bottle, they'll say, I'd rather not. Please pass the bottle. There is Psalm number one, church talks about the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and he is like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water. The reality is, some folks may get so well adjusted in one environment, their roots may go so deep, even when God is preparing to pull them up and plant them in a garden that has more sunlight, richer soil, and more water because they're used to where they are, they may say, God, can you please hold on a second? And that's the dilemma the people in Joshua chapter 3 were facing. They were facing the dilemma of going from the familiar to the unfamiliar. They were facing the dilemma of disruptive change. And the dilemma of disruptive change is that it requires us to change and that paralyzes some people. Paralyzes them with fear, paralyzes them with confusion, paralyzes them with doubt. So here now is the solution. Point number one. Point number one, if you have not passed this way before, feel comfort knowing that God has. If you have not passed this way before, feel comfort knowing that God has passed this way before. Change, beloved, is not new to God. Change is new to us. But change is not new to an unchangeable God. What does Joshua chapter 3, verse 3 says? It says, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. If the people were going after it, that means the ark, the physical representation of God's presence, goes first, meaning God leads, the people follow. The people were not going first, and the ark moved behind them, but rather, whenever the people saw the ark going ahead of them, they then followed in the footsteps where God had already been so that everywhere the people went was a place where God's presence had already touched. But even more than that, what was the original command given to Joshua in the beginning of this book? The people were given a command to go, but God also gave them a promise. Joshua chapter 1 verse 9 says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, 
for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When you have not passed this way before, feel comfort knowing that God has. Feel comfort, church, knowing that God is not only with us in the present, he has also gone ahead of us in the future. The path that you, that we, that someone else may be taking may indeed seem, may indeed feel brand new to us, but it's not new to God. The trouble that caught us by surprise today, the disruptive change which made us go completely off balance today, God saw coming way back in the past. God saw coming millions of trillions of years ago in eternity, and he is the one by his permissive will allowed that change to happen. This change, which is disruptive for us, did not catch God by surprise. So if a higher power has led us into the present, and if a higher power is leading us into the future, what reason do we have to fear? We don't. We therefore feel comfort knowing that God has already gone ahead of us. When you have not passed this way before, we feel comfort knowing that for God, timing is more important than time. When you have not gone this way before, we feel comfort knowing that for God, timing is more important than time. What's the context of our text? The context of our text is you had an entire people that was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. That's a long time. Then all of a sudden, bam, one day God's timing hits. And he tells Joshua, arise now, go now. So even though the people may have lingered, even though they have wandered, even though they were waiting in the wilderness for a long, long time of 40 years, God has a specific, precise timing. And when God's timing says, this is the time, nothing can stop God's timing. The people could have been in the wilderness for 40 years, for 100 years, or for 1,000 years, but God transcends time. To him, time isn't something that's limiting. In God's eyes, timing is far more important than time. So when God said to Joshua, arise, that's when all the people had to go according to God's timing. What does the book of Habakkuk say? Chapter 2, he tells his prophet, although it tarries, although it takes a long time, he says, wait for it, for the vision is for the appointed time. He was telling his prophet, I have a precise and specific timing, and when I say go, things happen. We then experience God's timing as disruptive change. God's timing may disrupt our timing, and God's timing can make us feel uncomfortable, but we feel comfort knowing that God's timing is always the best time. Because look what God was doing. God's timing may have disrupted the people in the familiar wilderness, but what was God doing? Leading his people into the unfamiliar promised land. 
Church, we have to begin considering something. When we go about our everyday lives and we call certain things disruptions, why do we use that term disruptions? We use that word because we have a particular perception of life where the path in which we're going is normal or the path in which we're going is the way things are supposed to be. And then a disruption happens and the disruption is a nuisance. The disruption is bothersome. The disruption is, it symbolizes something went wrong that now disturbs us off of our supposed to be path. Merriam-Webster defines disruption this way, quote, a break or interruption in the normal course or continuation of some activity or process. Here's my question. If we regard disruptions as an interruption of what's normal, who finds what's normal? Is it us or is it God? Because I want the church to consider, because we know God is a God of everlasting, abounding love, because God is a God of everlasting, abounding grace, and because we know that God's timing is more important than his perception of time, I want the church to consider that when we experience disruptions or interruptions in life, they're not disruptions or interruptions at all. They're actually God, by his grace, redirecting us to a new normal. We may have thought the path in which we were going was normal to us, but we have to consider God purposely now disrupts us to put us on the normal he wants us to be on. Once again, what was our original context? You had a generation of people wandering in the wilderness. When you are wandering, there's no sense of direction. You could literally be traveling in a circle over and over and over and over again. God's disruptive command given to Joshua tells the people what? Now there is a clear sense of direction. Now the people had to go one direction west. And without getting too heavy, in the Bible, whenever people move west, that's a sign of reconciliation and grace. Whenever people move east, that's a sign of judgment and distance from God. God purposely disrupted the people and now gave them a clear sense of direction west, moving out of the wilderness into the promised land. When we see, church, these disruptions as an act of grace where God redirects us, what we will now begin doing is the simple everyday disruptions in life, whether they're big or small, we're no longer going to regard them as happenstance or meaningless, as a nuisance or bothersome. What we're going to begin doing now is realizing that they happen on God's watch and according to God's precise timing. Let's make this plain. If you get up late one day and you're running late for work and you run out the door, and you tell yourself, I'm going to be late. 
the only way I'm going to get there on time is if there is zero traffic. And living this close to New York City, you know that's a pipe dream. So you're already frustrated, you're already angry, you leave the house, you get on the highway, you get on, and what's on the highway? This massive truck. And in this story, this truck is three lanes wide. No traffic can pass. And this truck isn't going 90, it's not going 120, it's going five miles an hour. Now you're salty, you're frustrated, you're acting unchristian, your entire day is ruined. This is a disruptive change. And as a result of this roadblock, what are you now forced to do? You're forced to change direction. Now you have to get off of the highway, take some side streets, and do some Google mapping in order to get to where you need to be. My point, church, is this. Nothing in this world happens that's, that's distant from the eyes of a sovereign God. So when we now experience disruptions, perhaps they're not disruptions at all. Perhaps they're simply a means for God to redirect us to a new normal, to show us something, to open our eyes to something, to show us that the path on which we were going is not his normal. And sometimes, I'm talking for myself now, sometimes I can be so stubborn, the only way my eyes will be opened is if God disrupts my plans. And the only thing I can do now is I'm forced to go a different direction. And when you get off that highway and you're now taking side streets and you're now redirected, is it going to be new? Yes. Is it going to be unfamiliar? Yes. You have not gone this way before, but God has. So even though it's unfamiliar to you, you keep your eyes on the Lord and he will redirect you. In 1 Kings chapter 19, God speaks to his prophet Elijah with a voice of gentle silence, with a gentle whisper. I want the church to consider that what we call disruptions in life are actually acts of God's grace being used as the means of a voice of gentle silence. In these disruptions, church, God, by his grace, is actually trying to talk to us. He's actually trying to show us something. He's actually trying to open our eyes to a particular reality that we are not seeing. And when we view disruptions like that, do you know what now happens? Now, when our plans when our schedules, when our priorities become shaken up. Now what we're not going to do is respond with rage. Now what we're not going to do is respond with irritability. Now what we're not going to do every time we meet a hiccup on the road is to lash out at everyone around us because God by his grace is showing us something. He's saying, you actually think you're sovereign. He's actually telling us, you think you are so important that the minute I disrupt your plan, 
you get bent out of shape. God, by his grace, is helping to expose the idol of self. And if now God is using disruption as a means of grace, what those disruptions will do, they'll remind us very quickly that we do not have life figured out, that we are not in complete and total control. So those disruptions now do what? Draw us, push us towards God who will nurture and sustain us by his grace because he is the one who is sovereign and he is the one who allowed that interruption to happen in the first place. Is responding to, to disruptions easy? No, it's not. Is it simple to change? No, it's not. Is it hard? Is it challenging? Is it frustrating? Absolutely yes. But we must understand, church, that God's primary concern is for you to grow. God's primary concern is not to coddle his children with the familiar. God's primary concern is to transform you into who he has called you to be. And he'll often use disruptions as the catalyst in that transformation process. You may not know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. And if you don't, here's a very brief bio. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was probably one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, which in my personal opinion deserves a space in the library of every Christian. Here's the point. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was German by birth. He was safe in the United States when Hitler was in power in Nazi Germany. What did Dietrich Bonhoeffer do? He voluntarily went back to Nazi Germany to take a stand for the truth of Jesus Christ and to essentially tell the Third Reich, you are wrong. Dietrich Bonhoeffer paid for that election with his life, but my point is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer voluntarily underwent a radical, disruptive change. So he's an expert on the matter. And in his book, Life Together, this is what Bonhoeffer writes, quote, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by preoccupied with our more important tasks. It is a strange fact that Christians and even ministers frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they are doing God a service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked, crooked yet straight path." End quote. Church, if you have not passed this way before, consider that before 
you were moving in the wrong direction and now God by his grace is using the disruptive change to redirect you. Now the practical application of all of this is simple. Now that we know disruptions are not the enemy. On the one hand, now we know that disruptions are not always a nuisance. On the other hand, we also know that our plans, our schedule, our priorities are not sovereign. On the one hand, we know that without disruptions, we are closing our spiritual ears to hear God whispering to us. On the other hand, we know if we lived a life in which we are constantly disrupted and we don't have any plans, we have no schedules, we have no priorities, nothing ever gets done. So where do we find the balance? How do we mesh the two? How do we balance having a plan, having a schedule, having a priority with being disrupted? And the answer is there is no clean answer. It's not a formula. You can't live life with a rigid formula saying, I'm going to be 70% plan, 30% disruption. I'm going to be 10% plan, 90% disruption. Life doesn't work like that. It's an ebb and flow, and each situation is different. The best thing I can say is that the moment you or I would ever make our schedule, our plan, our priority, the ultimate thing, and give no allowance for God to disrupt us, that simply means we will remain isolated, undisrupted, but we will remain so east of the Jordan. We will remain so not in the promised land. We will remain so in the barren wilderness, refusing to be disrupted, refusing to change, and refusing to discern the will of God to move us from one place to a better place. So that's the first point. Here's point number two. If you have not passed this way before, gain clarity knowing that other servants of God have. If you have not passed this way before, gain clarity knowing that other servants of God have. Church, human change is not new to humans. And when we find ourselves in the midst of disruptive change, and we're confused, and we're crying out to God asking, why God, why? We have to remember that this trial, this unsettling, may seem new to us, but it is not new at all to people who serve God. Case in point, Father Abraham in the book of Genesis, I'm not going to say he was old, I'm going to say he had lots of life experience. And Abraham had lots of life experience. He was settled, he was well-rooted in the place we would call modern-day Iraq. What does God say? He says, Abraham, get up, arise, time to pack your bags and go. Go west to the land I'm going to promise to your descendants. Don't you think that was unsettling? 
Don't you think that was painful? Don't you think for someone who had that much life experience, who was so used to that way of living, that that command by God rubbed him the wrong way? Of course it did. But when you are a servant of the Most High God, experiencing disruptive change is normal. Look at Joshua. If you were a member of the nation of Israel in Joshua chapter 3, if you felt confused, you could simply look to Joshua and say, this disruptive change, Joshua had already experienced. Because what happened in the book of Exodus? Joshua and 11 other spies were already sent into the promised land to spy out where people were going. So you could now look to a real life living, breathing example of someone else in your immediate environment who had already undergone crossing over the Jordan. And let us not forget that the ultimate servant of God was God himself, Jesus Christ, and his public ministry was a continuous stream of interruptions and disruptions and cataclysmic changes. What happens in Luke chapter 8, verses 43 to, 43 to 48? Jesus is in the midst of a crowd, preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. And what does a woman do who had been bleeding for 12 years? She disrupts him. She grabs him, and Jesus says, who touched me? Did he say, woman, how dare you touch me? Did he say, how dare you interrupt my plan? I was going from A to B. Jesus drew near to this woman and used that disruption to now demonstrate grace and mercy to someone in need. And when this woman now falls down, first of all, she immediately touches Jesus and she's immediately healed. She then falls down at his feet and glorifies and praises God. And what does Jesus say? He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And look at what's happening now. We're using how Jesus responded to a disruption as a faith lesson 2,000 years later. Jesus was giving us the example of how we are to treat and regard disruptions and interruptions in our everyday life. Because if you are a servant of God who ex is experiencing disruptive change, congratulations. That means you are normal. Just ask Abraham, just ask Joshua, just ask Jesus. Once again, in Habakkuk chapter 2, it says the righteous man will live by his faith. If you are living the life of faith, that means you bother with God. Therefore, God bothers with you, and he's going to cause you to undergo disruptive change. If you are not living by faith, guess what? You don't bother with God, God does not bother with you, and he leaves you alone. And you never cross the Jordan, and you will wander aimlessly in the desert your entire life. Church, if you have not passed this way before, consider that any type of progress implies change. Any type of progress implies change. The people of Israel were moving from the wilderness to the promised land. 
Guess who was in the promised land? Giants, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, all types of ites and bites, all new problems, all new challenges, all novel experiences that didn't exist in the familiar environments in which they were. Progress implies change and a new path by necessity requires new challenges. Church, have you ever considered that disruptive change in and of itself is a test of faith? If you are an earthen vessel that is in a nice, well-lit, breezy, cool, climate-controlled environment, and there were flowers and birds chirping, and everything is so nice and familiar. God will offer now, if he actually loves you, if he wants you to grow, he will grab your earthen vessel off of whatever pedestal it's on and throw you into the furnace. Where now it's hot, now it hurts, now you undergo a radical disruptive change. If you're an earthen vessel on the outside and you are flaky and airy, you will not survive in the furnace. But when God by his grace throws you in and then stands with you in the furnace, he's now going to refine you. So when you come out, it doesn't matter where you go, you can withstand the fire by God's grace. Consider church. That disruptive change is a test of faith. Therefore, don't let the disruption disrupt your faith. I want you to even consider that the disruptions we experience in everyday life may actually be the making of your faith. Let's take a step back. In its simplest, in simple terms, what were the people of Israel asked to do in Joshua 3? Two simple things. Follow the ark, cross the river. Simple. Simple, common, innocuous, everyday commands. But those two simple steps of faith would literally now be the first steps in the people crossing over the Jordan into the land of promise. I want the church to think about you and I as regular everyday people, it is highly unlikely that God is going to subject us to big, grand, bold, ostentatious displays of faith like slaying a giant, like slaying our firstborn son on Mount Moriah, like going up Mount Carmel and going one versus 850 false prophets. Likely not going to happen. But what will happen is we'll, we'll be disrupted. And the question now is, how do we respond towards those common, ordinary, itty-bitty disruptions? Because when we zoom out now and see how we respond cumulatively over the course of our walk with God, those small acts of faith are now going to add up. And those tiny disruptions now, zooming out over time, the cumulative effect is now going to be the making of our faith. J.C. Ryle once wrote, quote, in every work there must be beginning, and in spiritual work that beginning is very small. 
Don't let the disruption disrupt your faith because the disruption in and of itself may actually, church, be the making of your faith. Final point. Point number three. If you have not passed this way before, find confidence and certainty in an unchanging God. If you have not passed this way before, find confidence and certainty in an unchanging God. Change is an inescapable reality of life, which often nudges us to be uncertain and to doubt. As a result, we yearn for something reliable that does not change. And so we cling to the Lord who never, ever changes. So even in the midst of disruptive change, that disruption by design draws us closer to God. God is an unchanging God, therefore his person, his being, and his character never changes. There's no transition, there's no inconsistency, and there's no wavering in God. The same God who said, let there be light in the beginning, is the same God now. The same God who gave Joshua and the people of Israel the command to cross the river thousands of years ago is the same God now. The same God who forgave David when he committed adultery and the penalty for adultery was death. The same God who by his grace forgave his servant is the same God who is now and the same God who remembered his children and out of love endured the wrath of God on a cross is the same God who is now. As the psalmist says in Psalm 145 verses 8 to 9, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And that same God the psalmist was writing about is the same God that is now. God is an unchanging God, therefore his truth never changes. This means God's word never changes. As Psalm 118.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And because God's word does not change, this means his promises never change and are guaranteed for eternity. Because the God who made a promise in forever past is going to be around forever to make sure he does good on those promises. And once we know God's promises are good for eternity, that now gives us comfort clarity, confidence, and certainty. And what I want you to write down, church, is this one promise, Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10. There are a few promises in the Bible that can apply to almost any scenario in life. This is one of them. And in Isaiah 41.10, God speaks through his prophet to his people and says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with 
my righteous right hand. Yes, God will strengthen us. God will uphold us even in the midst of disruptive change. Church, as long as we're alive, things will continue to change. Whether that change is big or whether that change is small. But in the midst of disruptive change, we find confidence and certainty in an unchanging God. When I say certainty, that simply means we are sure. And we are always sure of the one who is always the same. The same, the, the one who is the same yesterday as he is today, as he will be forever. In closing, what I'll say is this. When we find ourselves in the midst of disruptive change, the sooner you embrace the reality that life as it is, is what's real, the sooner you will be able to take steps forward. Otherwise, you'll be standing still, paralyzed by fear, paralyzed by confusion, paralyzed by uncertainty, paralyzed by doubt, paralyzed potentially wishing for reality that does not exist. Because how did the narrative in Joshua chapter 3 end? By the people moving forward and crossing the Jordan. They stepped forward because they obeyed the word of God and they stepped forward and they obeyed because they simply trusted God. Here's how the chapter ends. Joshua 3, 14 to 17. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest. The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap, a great distance away at Adam, the city that is, that is beside Zarathan, and, though, and those which were flowing down towards the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho, and the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Whenever, church, you read about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, that is a symbol, that is a picture that points forward to Jesus Christ. What is the point, what is the crux of this entire story? That the ark which represents Jesus went first. And because the people trusted God, because the people followed the representation of Jesus Christ, that is what delivered them. The ark was the holiest piece of furniture in the entire Old Testament. What was it made out of? It was made of two substances in one ark. It was made of gold and acacia wood. That speaks to the divinity 
and the manhood of Jesus Christ in one person, gold and wood in one ark. What was in the ark? In the ark was two stone tablets on which God's law was written, telling us that Jesus is the word made flesh. Piece of article number two in the ark was the manna that descended from heaven. That was something heavenly that came from above and descended onto earth and God's people now fed on that manna in the wilderness, pointing forward to Jesus who is the bread of life. The final article in the ark was Aaron's rod. A rod that overnight budded almonds and flowers and life, telling us what? From something in which there was no life, spring something that was alive, pointing forward to the resurrection. What is the point, church? That the ark went first. And because the ark went first, because the people followed the ark, they were taken from the barren wilderness into the promised land. What river did the ark cross over? The Jordan. The river Jordan in Hebrew is Yarden. That word comes from two separate terms. The yar part comes from a word that means to descend or flow down. The Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea where nothing is alive because it's too salty. The Jordan flows down into the Dead Sea. What does the word Dan mean? It means judgment. So I'm not being too loose with the text when our English word Jordan actually means to descend down into judgment. And look at what God is doing. Jesus Christ, the ark, goes first. When the ark touches the water, the waters recede all the way back to Adam. So that now God's people are now, are now not swept down into judgment. Are now not swept down into the Dead Sea. The waters part. And now all the people are able to cross the Jordan on dry ground. The text says the priest stood firmly so that now with the parted waters, all of Israel crossed over to safely. And symbolically speaking now, while the literal Israelites crossed into rest, crossed into the promise in Joshua chapter 3, the spiritual lesson is that anyone who follows, who keeps their eyes on and walks in the way of Jesus Christ, will now be delivered into spiritual rest, spiritual abundance, spiritual prosperity. And that hope is real. Our faith is concrete because the one in which we are hoping does not change, even in the midst of disruptive change. What Jesus did on the cross does not change. What Christ was pierced for us does not change. The gospel of, God, of Jesus Christ does not change. God's word, God's promises does not change. The world may change, beloved, and people may change. But when you are in Jesus Christ, we are confident and secure in the midst of change because he does not. Let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for allowing your word to speak to us today. 
and even more than giving us a historical narrative of your people who crossed the Jordan thousands of years ago. We thank you, O oh Lord, for making your representation of the Son so clear and so evident, even in the Old Testament. And we just ask you, Divine Spirit, to write on our hearts the message and the lesson that whenever we find ourselves in the midst of chaos, in the midst of change, in the midst of any scenario that disturbs or unsettles us, that we will keep our eyes on the ark, that we will keep our eyes on our Lord Jesus Christ, that knowing if we follow you, O Lord Jesus, that if we follow him, the water shall part, we shall not drown in the waters of the Jordan, but rather we shall walk into the place, into the abundance, into the prosperity that you have promised for all of your servants who walk, who live the life of faith and follow you. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, peace be with you and to God be the glory forever.